1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? The name that means excitement is back. Bond. James Bond. That girl must be very talented. Shoot up. Believe me, my interest in her is purely professional. What is this? I've had a few optional extras installed. Wherever he goes, adventure follows. Two of our men are dead. Koskov's named you. Then I must die. Eliminate him. Kill him! for danger. He lives for the moment. He lives on the edge. Whoever she was, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. James Bond, 007, The Living Daylights. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and it is time for the next installment of the James Bond retrospective that we've been doing, and our panel keeps expanding and expanding. So this time around, going clockwise from myself over, at least on my particular screen, uh, next to me we have Mr. Brian Hughes. Hello. Who's, who's waving to everybody and forgetting <laughs> that this is an audio medium. Hey, you uh, got us on camera. I, I, you know, I'm, it's new to me. Mr. Chris Tyler. Do, 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 do. Uh-oh. <laughs> Scott H. Gardner. Hello. How you doing? Uh, we have Mr. J.C. Vaughn. Hello, everyone. And finally, Mr. David Pascarella. God, I feel like I've been on this train a long time already. 
I feel like we're on the Hollywood squares with everybody having their, their cameras on. That makes Scott That's alert, ridiculous. Right? <laughs> so, so today we're looking at The Living Daylights, which came out in 1987 and features the fourth James Bond. Uh, you know, we, we went through Sean Connery. We went over to George Lazenby. We came back to Sean Connery. We went to Roger Moore. And the Roger Moore... Uh, era ended on what is generally considered to be a down note, even though we had some disagreements on that when the last time we spoke about Bond, uh, you know, for your eyes only, uh, not for your eyes only, excuse me, uh, somebody help me out View to a Kill. View to a Kill was mostly panned by the critics, and a lot of it was, uh, you know, more being older, and a lot of it was that the action scenes didn't seem very realistic. Uh, and I think that the producers at this point decided, you know, let's get more grounded. Let's be a little bit more realistic in what we do, even though some of the action scenes still do strain credulity. Uh, so they, they brought in Timothy Dalton, who I believe had been considered for Bond, you know, way, way earlier yeah. uh, and did, you know, was not given the part. And they brought him in. And I'll be totally honest with you. I really enjoy this movie, but... But I do think it could have used just a little bit more humor in it. Not that they shouldn't go over the top like the way they did sometimes with more. But I would have liked just a little bit more lightheartedness every once in a while. A little comic relief, you know, every once in a while, uh, I think would have done well for it. Uh, I think Dalton did a real nice job of playing the serious Bond. I think he, you know, he he had the, the gravitas. He seemed credible in the part he was playing. Uh so my biggest criticism of it is probably that I really didn't care for the, uh, the the villain. I didn't feel like it was an over-the-top, really threaten, threatening villain that was going to just have me wonder, how's Bond going to beat this guy? <laughs> so that, that that's probably my biggest criticism of it. And just, you know, reel that in with, I really did enjoy this movie. Uh, you know, I saw it in the movies. I was excited about a new James Bond playing the role. I didn't feel like Dalton let me down. Uh, and, you know, I, I overall, I enjoyed the experience. And I think, you know, why don't we go in the same uh, same order we introduced everybody? Let me know how you first saw it and, you know, what your initial impression was. Okay. So, for Brian, you're on the board. Yeah. So, um, this is 1986. I had just gotten back from my first trip to Turkey where I had spent just about two months over there. Uh, my parents were living over there at the time, my father working for General Dynamics. And while I was over there, I had read Diamonds Are Forever, and I started to read Scorpius, which was the is, is it John Gardner novel. Yeah. And so going into this one, I was kind of like, you know, I really wish Bond would be more like he was written in the books. And I felt with Timothy Dalton, we got that. He was very much more of Ian Fleming's Bond than any of the other actors had been. Maybe George Lazenby had some closeness, but really Timothy Dalton struck me more as close to that Bond. So I was really pleased. Within the first few minutes, I said, Roger who? And so I, I, I was I was really, I, I bought into it and was just enjoying it for what it was. To me, Living Daylights was the full formula, everything you expected to see in a, in a Bond movie. So I really enjoyed it. All right, Chris, what about you? I think this is the first one that I ever actually rented on VHS. Because um, I was still relatively young when this one hit. 
so I hadn't been to too many movies yet, but I mean, we were, you know, watching, I was watching TV all the time, but I think this was, I rented this one and yeah, I just, I got, I don't think it was the first one I had seen. I honestly couldn't tell you which one that was now, but, uh, no, I got totally sucked into it. Um, so I didn't really have a baseline to, you know, well, it's a different bond. I didn't, didn't really care. It was, it was an action movie. This is cool guy and he's doing cool stuff. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's a hot blonde in it. And, uh, oh, and the car has uh, skis on it. Okay, yeah, I'm good. And then a uh, guy's dangling off of a, uh, you know, airplane. I'm, I'm a-okay with that. Plus, that whole, it, the whole pre-title sequence was on Gibraltar. Like, I, sucked in. How could you not be sucked in? And then he's just so cool being James Bond when he meets the hot chick on the yacht. Like, that, I, like, like Brian said, they, they kind of nailed what, when you think of the archetypal James Bond kind of moment, they they set you right up in the first 10 minutes of the movie. So, yeah, I mean, from that point on in, in the movie, I'm, I'm sucked in and, yeah, haven't, haven't gone back. So. Now, Scott, I think you're our biggest proponent of this movie. I think, you know, you're, you're <laughs> our biggest Dalton guy. So uh, how about you? I uh, I have no memory, strangely, of seeing this for the first time. I was racking my brains for that. It's weird because I know that the prior film, um, View to a Kill, was the first Bond film I ever saw in the theater, like, for, you know, like paid my own admission type of thing. I remember I have vivid memories of that, going with friends and everything and paying my own way in. I, you know, I'd gone to Bond films as a kid. You know, my dad had taken me to quite a few of them, but I, I don't remember the first time I saw this one. It was probably on VHS, but uh, I've liked this one since since the first time I did see it. And, you know, as I was telling you, you know, offline the other day that, you know, this, this is my uh, favorite Bond, but that was with the caveat. I hadn't seen it in a long time. So I really wanted to rewatch it and see, you know, did it still hold up after, um, you know, all these years. And then with, you know, the subsequent movies we've gotten over the years, cause I'm rather a big fan of the, uh, the latest guy there. Now I, I'm blanking on his name, Daniel Craig, uh, Daniel Craig. Yeah. I like his, uh, you know, the films of his, I've seen quite a bit too. So I was like, you know, how did it hold up and all that? And, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I think it holds up pretty good. I mean, you know, it's showing its age. It, it's got, you know, some 80s damage to it and all that. But um, the things I like about this movie and and this Bond in particular, uh, you know, Timothy Dalton is is my favorite Bond. I've, you know, I've, I've always said that. I've always thought he was the best. And, you know, the things that he gets criticized for are exactly the things that I think are the strengths that make me like him as Bond. I like that he's very serious. I would say, you know, I, I would argue just a bit that, uh, you know, that people say that, you know, this one's humorless. It's not. He's no. he has a witty side to him. He he jokes around a bit. He's just not farcical. He's not over he's the top dry. with it. Although it's I do think dry. there are a couple. Yeah. yeah, he's very dry. He's very dry. But I do think that there are actually a, a couple uh, moments in the movie that, um, you know, when they try to be funny, that actually don't land quite right. Because it, to me, it's a bit of a callback to some of the sillier aspects of the prior bond, you know, with, with Roger Moore, who I, I liked a lot, Roger Moore, but the thing with Roger Moore is, especially as he aged, I just didn't really 
I didn't really believe him after a while. You know what I mean? I, I just didn't see him as somebody that, you know, was this tough as nails, ruthless, cold blooded, ass kicking assassin. Whereas with Timothy Dalton, from the moment you look at him, I think, oh, yeah, this guy, you know, he might be good looking. He might be suave and debonair, but he also wouldn't hesitate to kill you if, you know, that's his mission. (laughs) And I like that in this movie. And I like that he really researched the part, you know, and he was trying to play exactly what Brian said. You know, he was trying to play Bond as written by Ian Fleming. And I I respect that immensely. You know, having read some of those books as a kid, I could kind of see that right from the beginning that he was much closer to literary bond than I think the prior bonds had been. So yeah, I I really like his performance in the movie and, and, you know, the movie on its own, you know, I had said before that, you know, this was kind of sentimentally my favorite bond, but I, I think it still is my favorite bond film. I really, really like this one. I, I think it holds up well. Okay, uh, we'll we'll do a little point counterpoint afterwards, but for now, uh, Jeff, what do you think? Paul, I think your uh, your overview was sort of spot on, um, and there's really it's really funny how much agreement there is in this already, and I'm sure we'll pick that apart here in a minute. But um, uh, one of the things that Scott was saying about him taking the the approach of Ian Fleming's James Bond. Uh, I remember the marketing push for this movie very well, and he did a lot of interviews where he said that that was the case. Now, I will tell you that I am more critical of it than than you, Scott, but at the same time, I'm not critical of decisions that he made. You know, writers and producers, there's stuff that that's not on him. Um, Paul, your point about the villain being... It's sort of cartoonish and sort of out of keeping with the rest of the movie and not serious. And particularly going back, and I'm, I'm sorry, uh, I think maybe it was Scott, but whoever said, talked about the pre-credit sequence. Um, okay, I, I am a, I, I've read a lot of uh, books about espionage, particularly in the Soviet era. And uh, when... The uh, carabiner came down the rope and it said Schmirt Spionum or Schmersch. <laughs> uh, uh, I was I was over the moon. I was like, oh, this is this is Bond. I mean, I was and I was a big Roger Moore fan. He stayed too long. If Roger Moore had bowed out after running up those stairs, standing in front of the car and shooting the guy in for your eyes only we would have a much different memory of him as Bond than we do for the last two movies. That's his best um, moment. I agree. I, I, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Well, there's, there's no question that, that and, yours only was his last true and, and, and uh, I, moment. I say, the, sun. the answer to the first question is I saw it at the movie theater uh, until, until the world is not enough, which I saw the second day. After I saw Spy Who Loved Me on opening day, I saw everyone on opening day. That's uh, awesome. And, and uh, uh, you know, I can criticize Bond movies as only somebody who loves them can. <laughs> you know? I, think, I think that's this whole crew. It, it does, <laughs> it does, is, seem, is it does seem to be. 
And and I, I got to say, there's a few there's a few other elements nobody's touched on in this. So I'll hit them real quick. One, I love I love the music. It was of the yeah. era, mm-hmm. uh, but yes, pause, uh, in there. And then also, it's totally blown over. But the music the 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 the, the milkman assassin is listening to. Yeah. Where is everybody gone? By John Barry and the Pretenders. Yep. <laughs> That's on my playlist in my car all the time. And the lyrics, the lyrics are nonsensical, but but the baseline, it, it just just freaking great. And I, I I like most of the casting. I actually think even the villain casting would have worked if they had if they had a script they could have sunk their teeth into. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I do. I I, I agree with. I blame a little bit more on the scripting than anything else uh, as far as the criticism that I have, which, again, my criticisms may sound over the top, but they're not. Believe me, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of this movie. So, so that's, yeah, that, that's yeah, about yes, that's Scott, my, we that's will, my quick overview. <laughs> uh, so, OK, so then we'll move on to our last uh, panel member, Dave. You, you're ready to play uh, back cleanup for us here. Well. I'm going to zig when everyone else zigged a bit. I liked Timothy Dalton. I think he makes a fantastic bond. I wasn't happy with what he was given to work with. I, I, I found it not an over-the-top way like we've seen in the past with Moonraker or something like that, but it was more along the lines of kind of bad General Whitaker, tell me he wasn't Lex Luthor in the old Silver Age comic books, that he had a hall of villains with his picture, you know, his face on all all, all the villains. I mean, your best villain thinks he's the good guy. I don't really see, you know, someone who thinks they're the good guy who's got pictures of every single bad guy from history with his face on it, nonetheless. <laughs> All right, yeah, it's, it's good point. <laughs> the Gibraltar scene, it was good, it was exciting. Yes, the Smirsh references were great. When he was riding in the truck with the explosives and it was on fire, all I kept thinking was it needs Acme written across the back. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he did make up for it landing on the, the yacht. Um, Another thing, one of the tropes about Bond, which is not politically correct today, is he's a ladies' man. He didn't do much ladies' manning in this picture. I remember there was um, a bunch of articles about that, that they were trying to, because it was in the day where monogamy was supposed to be making a big comeback. It, it so wasn't because monogamy was making a big comeback. It was because AIDS was making a big, well, and, uh, yeah. uh, and that's, you know, that's creating problems. Right, right. Sorry. So, yeah, right. they're, they're, but you know what? I, I feel like there's a progression here uh, that the producers of Bond had where, uh, and I think Moonraker might have been part of the reason for it, that they decided they were getting a little too silly because there was a lot of criticism for that. So what they did was, you know, they did For Your Eyes Only, and originally when they did For Your Eyes Only, the expectation was that it was not going to be Roger Moore. It was going to be a new Bond. And from what I understand, Dalton was one of the people considered at that time to take over the role. Let me ask you, uh, let me ask you a question about that. For Your Eyes Only was supposed to come after Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. And then Moonraker comes in. 
is that just because of Star Wars or what was going on? Yeah. I believe yeah, it's just because Star of Star Wars. But then I think the movie got a lot of cri- critical uh, criticism uh, and from the public at large for just being a little too over the top and a little silly. It, was, it didn't capture people's imaginations the way Star Wars did. So they decided to ground it a little bit. And that's when they went to the script that they got for Fear Eyes Only, which had a little bit more of a down and dirty bond. And I loved more in that movie. And we talked about it when we reviewed that movie. But the producers are, you know, they were a little afraid to to go too far that way. Then when they made this movie, I feel like they went a little bit more grounded, but they still weren't willing to go all the way. Uh, and oh, then it took oh. it took them until they got to Daniel Craig when they said, let's really ground the movie. And then I feel like they've almost gone. I don't want to critique those movies yet. We're going to get to them. But I feel like they've almost gone too far the other way. And now. Whenever they revive the Bond character, they're going to have to put a little bit more lightheartedness back into it because we've lost all of it. Yeah, I think, gadgets. I think but I right. mean, in addition to the Acme truck, Kakov crashes into a plane and has the burning wing on top of his Jeep and he's still going. Yeah, <laughs> there was somewhat humor. I don't know how funny it was, but but. I think Scott hit on a point with the humor when he said that, you know, the the things that seemed like they were trying to intentionally put humor in kind of failed, whereas Dalton's Dalton's portrayal, you know, he kind of took it on himself to be a little riot moments in the way he gave certain lines that did well. Yes. Uh, But I think they needed to plan that out a little better and and give him the, you know, give him the line that was going to be amusing and let him. Do it his way, and I think the, the movie would have uh, would have been better for it. It really it really comes down to me when when Bond is the object of the humor, the series fails. When Bond is making some wry observation or being being witty from Connery on up, that's when Bond is the Bond that I expect from the movies. So like when the the car's going on the ice and he's making all the comments about. The uh, extra uh, extras that have been added on. You 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 like that because that that was to me the least funny part of it, just because it was so, so obvious. Of a, of oh a yeah, hit. there's 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 places where to me, you, it needs a volume knob, and you know a little aside can go a lot further than like, hey, look what we're doing. <laughs> I, I think like I esca- think escaping in the cello case. <laughs> oh, that, that was that, honestly that was a bad I love sequence that. as far as I was. All concerned. I kept thinking was that. So, oh, no, I, I, I'm sorry. To I, me, I, to I, me, that was oh, that I, was like Bond taking. Uh, was it in the last movie where he took like a something that wasn't even a ski and turned it into a ski, and he was uh, going down the mountain almost like, a, like an expert. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a little just a little too over the top. Yeah. But you know, when you talk about the humor and how it's living, and the the, the line, there's there's one like line in the series that couldn't be more corny and couldn't be less funny except for the way it's delivered by the actor. And I always smile every time I see it is when I'm watching Goldfinger and, and the woman's the, the maid says, that's Mr. Goldfinger's sweet. And he says, yes, you're very sweet. Like just, it's a terrible line, but the way Connery delivers it, it still makes me smile. So you got to let the actor do his job. And, and that's where I think, you know, sometimes they fail because they just try and ram a humorous line down your throat instead of letting the actor, you know, make you smile with it. To me, the funniest part was when Dalton almost did the wolf whistle. I mean, you saw him pursing his lips going going for that and then Q stops him, you know, but that that was his funniest moment for me. 
I, I, I love the uh, he got the boot line because there's such a yeah. He's just like, I got to say this line. I'm going to say it the way I want to say it. And it's not really going to be funny at all. I just dispatched this guy with prejudice. And I'm going to let you know that I dispatched him with prejudice. And let it me, makes let me, me laugh. Uh, one of the things, you know, we, we have to do with every Bond film. You know, we, it's just because it's a trope of the movies. We got to think about the Bond women. I really liked Miriam Dabo as a change of pace Bond woman. Yeah. She is not the... Uh, you know, the Victoria's Secret model. She's not, you know, your typical Bond woman at all. She seems very demure. She's actually devoted to, uh, what's his name, Yuri, the... Uh, Yurgi. Yurgi. Uh, and, and, and it's one of the reasons why they I think they don't have Bond really push himself on her at all, because he's trying to respect her and what she wants. And it's, it's you know, it's better that way. When you think of some of the movies that are, you know, in... in, in you know, where Bond is like forcing himself on the woman and then she Let's just gives in and starts kissing him back. Uh, you know, it's cringeworthy when you think of that now. This this actually developed. I feel like they earned the sexual tension by the end and the sexual relationship that they had. And I thought she was really a top notch Bond woman, despite the fact that she was not prototypical. I I, the- I think I agree. And uh, she made a documentary about being a Bond woman. And interviewed a lot of people. And it came out with one of the DVDs uh, years ago. And it really, it really was, you know, it was a little bit fluffy because it it was trying, you know, she was trying to sell it, obviously. Um, But at the same time, uh, it was pretty good. And it talked about, you know, some of the different types and and things like that. And I think that, uh, I, I think you're right. Well, I mean, she, that particular she, DVD came out as a uh, bonus DVD with Die Another Day, by the way. Yeah, I, well, she I mean, she looks like she just stepped out of Eastern Europe, like yeah. between the haircut and her personality. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, even the accent, I mean, I'm sure and, it's and, not and, and, true and, to in life. All, but. In all honesty, it's one of the places where I think he got close to the Fleming bond because he may have been attracted to her, but he was playing her affection for Yorgi. Right. You know, he was he, he, he may was, have been at first, but I don't I don't know. I, I'm I'm curious I'm not, what the I'm rest not saying of that things. I'm not saying that things didn't progress, but I'm right. but absolutely at the start. He he is playing her. And and for for yeah. information to follow to follow this through. And the fact that he gets, a you know, more or less conflicted about that, though, not wrenchingly so. Uh, I thought was was really good good writing and good and definitely good acting. Not a uh, you know not really a secret or anything. Well, it was a well known uh, trivia fact, but since it's so far removed, people may not remember that her cousin was the older sister on the Wonder Years. Olivia, I almost, I almost yeah, remember. she was in Conan the Destroyer too. Sure was. Yep. <laughs> now it's, I need to it's watch. It's odd that. for. It's odd for me that one of the things that that makes this so high on my list is that typically when it comes to films like this, like, say, James Bond or, or a superhero film or whatever, it's usually the obligatory love story or the obligatory love interest par- portion of the movie that I find the most grown worthy and the most like, oh, God, just get past this. Why does everything, you know, every superhero movie have to have this type of thing? But with this one, it really works for me because what I pick up from this is that Bond really is kind of smitten with her. 
And I think that's why he's not doing the usual Bond, you know, ladies man sleeping around or really even pushing himself on her. Is I think he's really kind of taken with her because I find her to be a, a nice juxtaposition with him because what what Dalton's playing is the kind of not quite burned out Bond, but like. You know what I mean? Like he's he's weathered by this whole thing, you know, and he makes the comment early on about, you know, if M fires him, then he'll thank him for it kind of thing. So, you know, he's kind of world weary. And then he sees this this beautiful girl. She's she's young. She's very innocent. And I think he picks up on that right away. Her innocence. I think that's why he spares her life when he's been ordered to kill her is that. You know, he makes the comment that, you know, she didn't know one end of the rifle from the other. And I think once he works his way into, you know, her her presence, I agree with JC. I I think at first maybe it it may be because he's going to, you know, work her for information and all that to try to get to Yogi. But I think he falls for her. And I think he actually falls rather hard for it. It's very subtle in the way it's played in the movie. And I like that. But that that is one of the things I like best about the movie is I, I think he genuinely loves her. And I, I really liked that aspect of it. I, I put it right up there with like Vesper in uh, in Casino Royale or, or even some of the other Bond women where it was more than just a dalliance. You could see that Bond like genuinely had affection for you know this woman. And I, and I like that aspect of it. Well, like it, I said, I, it, I think, it I one think of that was early, more earned. Yeah, because one of the earlier scenes, right. the scene where she's putting the cello in the car – and you can see he's really angry. He's at his wit's end. He's angry. He's <laughs> slamming stuff around and, and everything. And, and and it's just like you know, he's exasperated with her. And so, you know, it takes her a little bit more to win him over. Even so, and she's able to do it. Right. And like you said, it was subtle. And I thought this was a good step in that direction, showing the progression from that frustration to that. Well, otherwise, you know, in you know, the, they, Bond, the previous Bond movies, you always have the scene, you know, by the end of the movie, it's like, oh, what do you want to have, darling? And, you know, they're together and, and you think, oh, this is a couple now. And by the next movie, that woman is such history. That it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's there, there is a disposable aspect to them. And, and like I said, I, I kind of felt like this one, by not having it be so intense so quickly. And letting it build up over the course of the movie, it just felt more real. Even though by the so time we get to License to Kill, one. she's history. Well, it's, it's funny. I was rewatching well, it, it today, and I was like, oh, man, they really got away from the O. James things in the uh, after Roger Wells. Like, no, no, it's right there at the end. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the film does take its time building them up, too. And that, that was another thing I liked is, you know, here he's he's very traveled. You know, he's very cultured. He's been all over the place. He's been to these places he takes her to before. And I don't know if the movie explicitly says it or not, but I get the impression she's never been to any of these other places. And I so, love that moment when he's whispering to her during the opera. Right. Like, yeah, because he, he's found something amusing and he has to lean over and tell her what's going on. And then there's, right. uh, and, you know, and when they finally just come to a months. rest and it's, and it's like, uh, oh, I know a restaurant three miles from here. We can <laughs> just get there in time for dinner. Uh, and it's those little moments, you know, the carriage ride and showing her around these different places and taking her to the opera and all that. It's those little moments where you can see that, you know, that he's starting to fall for her. Scott, you, and you, just, I, you, I just really really, you just really hit on something there. And it was a major component of the early movies. It's a vital component of the Fleming books. 
this movie in, in its own way, and I'm really just thinking about this now because of what you said, is a little bit of throwback in that it's a travel log. What are these yeah. exciting yeah. places that you get to jet off to? Well, Bond gets to go there. He knows where he knows the restaurant. He knows all about Vienna, blah, blah, blah. Just you got some. That's an amazing point, actually. And another, well, another it's, point it's also that, a throw. I'm sorry. It's no, also ahead, a sir. throwback in the sense that this is. Correct me if I'm wrong, but to my recollection, this is the last um, I'm going to say this in air quotes, pure Bond, in the sense that Bond was born out of the Cold War. He's a Cold War era spy. And this is the last one where we get to see that because not long after this, the Berlin Wall would fall and all of that. And even the sequel to this has nothing to do with Cold War. It's all about the, the drugs and all that sort of thing. I don't know about beyond that because I never watched any of the uh, what's his name uh, Pierce Brosnan is the only Bonds I've never seen because I I just can't stand him. But you know this one is even with the eighties damage at all it it takes place at just kind of a the right time it's kind of a magical time in both world history political history but also movie history and I, I think that's why it works so well for me because it, it stands right along you know, other great films of this era, you know, you had RoboCop, you had Die Hard, and, and I kind of get a feel of those kind of movies influencing on this as well. And again, you know, that, that pure bond dealing with Cold War. So I'll forgive not having a big flamboyant over the top villain, or, you know, one of the things I really love about this is you don't get the obligatory and in my view, ridiculous villain lair so many of the roger moore bonds became so formulaic with they always had to have like the secret missile base inside a volcano and all that <laughs> crap and you don't, don't get you be any putting of down that. you only live twice man you know this now this one may pendulum swing too far the other way that not you know not only didn't we get the big base we actually got kind of a, a lame villain with a lame ending to him but i'll forgive all that for all the other stuff that does work with the movie so I was wondering look. about that ending. I was wondering, was it that they the budget ran low after the fight with Necros <laughs> on the plane? Well, I mean, the and, henchman is always the real physical threat anyway. I mean, come on. So they didn't, well, mean, that's, yeah, it that's goes back cool. to odd job. And, and going back to um, uh, well, what, what you'd mentioned early on, Paul, you, you were saying Timothy Dalton had been picked before. He actually was supposed to be in You, uh, you Only Live Twice. And he felt he was too young for it. They wow. He'd auditioned. The Broccoli's had approved of him. And he says, I'm just too young for this. And so they also wanted him on um, Her Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever. But he never felt like he was ready for it till later. How old, how old is Dalton? Now he's like 70. <laughs> <laughs> but wow, he really was young back then. Yeah, hey, I'll Dalton tell you what, though, despite his age in, uh, now, forty-six. So at this point, he would 40. have been in—he would have been forty-one years old when this despite came out. He was probably age, forty when they filmed it. Despite his age now, I'd love to see him come back and do like a Never Say Never Again style movie, like uh, like uh, Connery did. I haven't I, seen I him in long enough to like. I don't know what his physical presence is at this point. He was, I uh, he's he on Doom pretty, Patrol. Yeah, he's on he? Doom Patrol, and he was um, in he's one of the big. Well. 
He was yeah, he's he's he was he's looking, penny dreadful too. Yeah. yeah was, One of the things looked, I wanted to to mention cuz Scott you brought it up earlier and I think it's worth exploring just a little bit. Uh and as we've talked about I really haven't read the books. Uh you know, a couple of people here, Jeff in particular, have read a lot of them. Uh my impression when you mentioned earlier about the world-weary Bond is that portrayal in and of itself is more true to what we get in the books. Like, you know, Bond is almost the reluctant hero uh, in the books, whereas throughout the Sean Connery, Roger Moore eras, it's almost like he's enjoying himself a little too much being the super spy. Uh, And I'm just wondering, you know, anybody who's read the books, is that interpretation correct or not? It's fair. It's it's fair. It's fairly on the mark. Like, I think that there's varying degrees with both uh, Connery and Moore where their wry humor is akin to gallows humor and it's appropriate to the situation or where it's a little bit more over the top and a little bit more forced the one the parts that are a little bit more forced are not like the are not like the books bond in the books is a blunt instrument and um quoting judy dench from a later movie um but uh it it, it's to me uh i'm it's really funny it's making me think about this movie a lot i'm I'm super familiar with it um i like this movie i like it with all the things that i complain about it for um but i think it might be you said the last cold war movie yeah, maybe it, maybe it's there. If you look at the components of the things that we we think of as a Bond movie, uh, it's definitely the last one that shows the Soviets. Yeah, and that's uh, and it's not that the Chinese are not a later feature, uh, and there is a bit of segueing that can be done there. But it's not it's not a uniform switch. So I think that this one this this there's we've come up with several things tonight that are definitely worth reevaluating this movie, uh, even if you have like a really hard and fast opinion of it. Like I really like this movie, but now all of a sudden I'm thinking about it like three at least three different ways than I did coming in. <laughs> yeah, you know the, the the thing that occurs to me, of course, in in all this is that. You know, the the Bond books were written in a much different order than the movies were made. Yeah. Uh, and, right. and I mean, some of them, the only thing that they had in common was the title. Uh, and I think The Living Daylights, wasn't that just a short story or just mm-hmm. the... Living, Living Daylights came yeah. from a short story. Octopussy came from a short story. Uh, For Your Eyes Only. And, of course, Spy Love Me had nothing to do with the book. And there was very little interconnecting tissue you know, between the movies, except the things that they pulled from Spectra, Spectre and, you know, Blofeld and utilizing him in different places. And um, that's what that's what got Fleming into such trouble. Yeah. Now, the um, the the other thing that, that they had in this movie and I noticed it um, you know, prevalent through the Roger Moore films and they used a little bit of during the, the uh, Pierce Brosnan era was Bond had a measure of fame almost in certain circles. Oh, you're, you know, like like uh, other spies knew who he was. Rich yeah. bad guys knew who he was. I, Every I hotel. That. 
every hotel concierge knew his name. You know, Bond would walk in and go, "Oh, Mr. Bond," you know, and. I don't mind. I don't mind hotel owners knowing who he is because he's going to different hotels all the time. But if they know he's a super spy, no, I don't like that. Uh, I what I what I like what I like is when they address him as Commander Bond by by his cover. I uh, I, I absolutely agree that. But I do. We've just sort of really activated this in my brain. I grew up in an airline industry family. I really like the travelogue aspect of of early Bond. But I, I you know. In some of the earlier movies, the the aspect of him being famous really disturbs me. And and you know again, I'm going to go to 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 Sean Connery in in Diamonds Are Forever when he pretends that the other guy you just killed James Bond. Oh, I guess it shows that no one can live forever or whatever. But you know, it's just like no, James Bond is is he's undercover. He's not. Yeah. You know, the, the world at large doesn't know who he is and shouldn't know who he oh, my, is. My 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 favorite phrase from that from that era of marketing. World famous secret agent. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he could have done the American Express commercials. That's why I carry this. So no, that, I, I think that's a good point, though, Paul, because there, there was one moment I caught in this that I don't think I ever thought about before is uh, when Bond is tailing the girl, the cellist, and she gets pulled off the trolley. You know, the trolley comes to a stop. He's watching all this through the window of the trolley as she's brought over to the, the KGB car and Pushkin gets out. Pushkin knows Bond. All he had to do was glance up and see Bond watching him in the window and the, the jig is up. And yeah. I, I couldn't unsee that once I saw it. I'm like, that's very careless of James Bond and, to just be right there at the window looking the down that, on this situation. I, the thing I hate about that is not is not peculiar to James Bond movies. That's a, that's a Hollywood trope. Right. Whether, and, 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 and OK, this is way off topic. But, dude, I love original magnum pi but you're following somebody two car lengths behind in a red ferrari <laughs> yep. yep you know or a helicopter with with yeah. orange and brown yeah. stripes okay. on it. and 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 one of the th one of the things about that <laughs> is yeah okay hawaii uh, like new york hawaii there's a lot of tourist helicopters you could you could blow off some of that but when the thing's following you down a street okay I realize when you're writing a weekly TV show, you've got a lot less budget than you do for a movie. But back <laughs> to Bond with this. Okay. Show us. It'll take a little bit longer for your, your, your director of photography to set up the shot. But show us him being clever and how he watches them and doesn't get seen. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. He I should agree. have turned around and pretend he was kissing a, a woman. Yeah, it worked for Captain America and Black Widow. And and I was gonna say that was a great thing. Not only that they did that, but that she even threw in the little, you know, the little uh, explanation of it that people are uncomfortable with other people kissing and purposely yeah. look the other way. Yeah, yeah. That, so I thought that, that was a very very good moment in that movie. Yeah, those little moments in uh, in Winter Soldier, they really are some of the most believable spy stuff I've ever seen in a movie. Because yeah, uh, you know, yeah, I agree with JC totally. Mo most of the time. It's like the thing you're doing to not draw attention to yourself is totally drawing attention to yourself. Yeah, sit, sit, sit in the car and honk your horn and flash your light. It's <laughs> in, uh, in the middle of the 2000s, BMW did a series of short films. Oh, yeah. Clive they Owen, had man. 
Clive Owen as the driver, and they had um, directors like John Frankenheimer, Ang Lee, Guy Ritchie, and others come in and do these little short films where uh, Clive Owen was basically playing an American James Bond type, or but I don't remember if he was American doing his accent. Yeah, he was doing his accent. He called Madonna Mum. But um, and and in each one of them, it was a different function. You know, one of them was just you know the the handling and driving of the cars. Another one was how to pursue someone, how to chase someone or to follow someone. And, you know, basically he's giving all the tips and hints of how you tail somebody and not be seen. The, the, the Frankenheimer one was glorious. Yeah, the Frankenheimer one was definitely you know, one of my favorite. Guy Ritchie's, though, with Guy Madonna. Ritchie's, Guy Ritchie's, because I'm, I'm not a big Madonna fan. Oh, that and, was great. And the way they made her character in that movie. These, was, these are all out on YouTube, guys. You can just look up BMW Clive Owen and and, yeah, and they're, you, they're you definitely can, worth watching. I'll look yeah, they are. I haven't seen them. Oh, in all seriousness, Paul, they 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 range from pretty good to outstanding. And it makes you wonder why oh why did Clive Owen not get picked for James I, Bond dude, at one point? Uh, he was uh, when I first realized, started seeing him and stuff. I'm like, this guy is James Bond. Like, there's a British movie called Croupier that you must watch if All you right. haven't seen it. Uh, very, He's very Bond in that. He, he, the, the, the role is um, of, a, of a different thing, but it's a very interesting movie. All right. That one in mind. So I think we should, we should touch maybe on uh, the various, uh, either villains or people who we thought, who, who we were supposed to think were villains uh, in this movie or people who we weren't supposed to think are villains and are. Uh, and we'll start with Pushkin because he's really not a villain, but they present him as a villain, uh, early, you know, early on in the movie. And, uh, you know, anytime I get to see Sala in a movie, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's really, that was like my total take on him. It's, it's, it's every time I saw him, I just wanted to, to, to hear him. What, what is the song he sings with the date? He says, I am the monarch of the sea or whatever. I just wanted yeah. to hear him break into that. Uh, I wanted to see him harassing Daredevil and the Hulk, but that's me. I want, to, I want him to say, nobody tosses a dwarf. <laughs> I like him in this role because I, I really like that actor a lot. And and I, I'm with you. Anytime I see him, I'm like, I just smile. I'm like, oh, it's him. But I like him in this because he, he's not at all a buffoon. He's, he's you know, played totally straight, which, I, to my memory, you don't see a whole lot with that actor. So I, I liked that in this. I, I liked his role a lot. Apparently, something I was reading today said that he was offered to come back uh, a couple of times for subsequent Bonds. But for whatever reason, uh, he, he's never come back, you know, for the same role. Um, I would have liked to have seen him come back at some point because I, I liked his character. Yeah, he was likable and he's brutal at the same time. Right there, oh yeah, we're going to send you back to Moscow in the, in the diplomatic, diplomatic bag. bag. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the delivery of that in the diplomatic bag. But he's so he's good. got you know, and just from his other movies he's been in, and you've seen him, he's got I think impeccable comic timing. He 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 yeah. really, you know, he he does a, a nice job of presenting the the line as if he's totally serious. There's no smirk about it, but you you hear it and you and and you smirk. Yeah, which, yeah. Which, that's yeah. I love that because because that was that was the line that was dark humor because that was how that was what was really going on, you know. Yeah. So then, uh, I gotta say I was not really crazy about Joe Don Baker as Whitaker. Oh, uh, that was terrible. And 
you know, he 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 was a counterpoint to, to Sheriff Pepper, uh, Dave. <laughs> yeah, but not good. Yeah, I know. What? Look, but I, I, it, that, well, that was that was what was struck me today. I was like, oh my god, the big bad is literally a tabletop war gamer. Like, really? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, okay. he he, did, he didn't really have a lot of screen time, and I think that was that ended up. I, I wonder if that's things that ended up on the cutting room floor because he just wasn't working. And he was uh, playing the same role I'd seen him play in several other movies around that time. What, and what, even later when he came into the uh, the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies as the CIA contact, yeah. he didn't really, you know, did anything to really differentiate himself. I was just like, oh, it's the same guy. To me, to me, it was to me, they were they they got him. And, you know, clearly go back and look at his career. The guy can act. Yes. Yeah. Walking okay. tall. Walking tall. Yeah. And, and and I think that one of the things about that 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 makes it a little frustrating is the glamour. I don't oh, think sorry. I don't think you can. I don't think we we know enough based on what's been revealed about the making of this movie to say whether it was him or the script or the direction. Um. Because. Go back and listen to his lines, say them yourself, and there's some dumbass lines. Yeah, so that's and that's why I'm putting it on the script, not on. I him think I think it I think it is, and as a writer, I'm I'm that's my inclination, uh, based based on the fact that I've seen other great performances from the guy. I think Joe Don Baker could have been a brutal, frightening villain if he had a script yeah. that worked. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think I think I think. They thought that he by himself, this is, you know, purely conjecture on my part. I don't know this, but I'm thinking they thought he himself would have enough gravitas that, you know, he would overcome the writing, that they don't have to write him that way. He's just going to do it by his presence on the screen. And and that doesn't come through. They needed to give him something to work with. And we they really that, didn't. And let's, face, let's, let's face it. The 80s was the first of two solid decades of Hollywood acting that way about certain actors. Well, I mean, mm. what does it say, though? You show up on set and what you're confronted by is, oh, God, there's 12 busts of my face on different mannequins. Like, as an actor, what do you do with that? I mean, what clicks in your head to go, all right, how am I going to play this guy? This is this is who this guy is. You know, I, it's almost like yeah. it's got to be a comedy. You can't be serious. This guy putting his face on everybody. But but I, I think Dave, I think you hit it on the head. I think if they gave him the right material to work with, he 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 could have been, you know, he could have been one of the best Bond villains. But yeah, you know, unfortunately, he's one of the worst. Going going um, back going going back to going back to Christopher Walken. You know, I while I I I think I said when I'm talking about it, I love we would anybody else care to drop out? But <laughs> but, but in all seriousness. His talents were wasted because, you know, part of it is they didn't know he was Christopher Walken yet. <laughs> you know? I don't know if he knew he was Christopher <laughs> Walken yet, although he did have an Academy Award. But, but you know what I mean? Yeah, they, did, they, they didn't know that he was going to be like that. Yeah. Oh no. They, see, they, they should know. have given him more of a part to chew up the scenery. But yeah, I think he, you're still mad that I like that movie more than you. <laughs> nah, not really. <laughs> no, yeah. That was up. That was up the moment. But here's. But, but here's. But here. But here's. Here's what I say. 
I think I think we're all sort of gravitating to he could have been one of the greats, and it just wasn't. Yeah. yeah. No, it's it's and and I I think we're I think I don't think it's the direction at all. I think it's it's purely the script. I thought and and I want to talk about the direction after we get through a few more of these characters. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name right. Yoren uh, Kreb uh, as General Yorgi Kaskov. Uh, now he's he's an actor who I can think of three roles for him, and I've seen him in other things, but I can't remember off yeah, the top of my head. The first role was the fugitive, where I thought he was very good Great, in that. Too. I really thought he yeah. he he did such a good job in that one. Uh, and then the other one is the total opposite end of the spectrum. My wife and I were recently watching uh, the show Dynasty, uh, and they had uh, in like two years or three years after the show ended, they did like a two part reunion movie, and he was the villain in that movie. And and really, it felt like he could have walked off the set of a Power Rangers movie. Not makeup wise but acting wise it was he was so over the top and and terrible you know and and you know like you know just chewing up the scenery and and uh, you know he, he really was bad this one i felt was like kind of somewhere in the middle of those two he wasn't he wasn't bad he wasn't good he was just kind of there uh i did like when 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 James first comes over with all the uh, the food for him and he's you know in in the halfway house or whatever you want to call it and and he and he runs over and he hugs him and he kisses him and he's like you know he's I thought he played smarmy very well in that scene. Uh, but you know see, what I thought I, when I saw see, him? I thought, what the hell is Falco doing in this movie? Because he, I was waiting for him to break out into Rock Me Amadeus because he looks when like he, Falco. When he comes- when he comes running over and doing that, to me, okay, thinking like spy movies and, and thinking like the Bond books, which they've sold me just a little, you know, just an hour before in the opening. Um, I thought it was so over the top that if I was Bond, I would have shot him. <laughs> but, see, but, you know, to me, it was, it was more than that. It was the way he seemed. He was a general. Correct? And did I miss something? Yes. KGB. But he was a sniveling general. <laughs> right, but I mean, I can't imagine in an organization, he was so scary in the beginning. Oh, they're going to shoot me. And then he didn't want to get into the tube to get shot out of Eastern Europe. He just which, which makes like you a, question whether he would, you know, whether he would defect in the first place, which he right. wasn't. But would he also be the guy you would pick to fake a defection? You know? <sighs> This is the guy that took people's names when the teacher left the room, all right? This is a guy that informed upon other people. He's the guy that you're going to hate regardless, and he's just the kind of guy that, that you know, the, the, the British or the Americans would expect to defect. So, I mean, it all worked out when you sit there and you look at the character the way he was. I don't know if anybody else in the room is is a veteran or not, but I, I can just tell you, as a veteran, not all generals are Patton. Most of them are pussies. So yeah, this guy, <laughs> yeah, he he played it. Yeah. Most officers got. Most officers got to where they where they got through you know not not through working their way up through the ranks is what I mean you know so. You know, just because he was a general does not mean he was a soldier that he, you know, got there because of guts and glory, you know. Well, you you do find as you get older and more mature and you you meet people and you see people and, uh, 
you see people who've gotten to the top of their business. And as a kid, you think, oh, these are the smartest. These are the most innovative. This is, And then you kind of learn that a lot of them are just it's not what they know. It's who they know or it's what position were they born into. You know, and, and, and the line I always hear on that one that I like is, you know, the guy was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Uh, <laughs> you know, but but there's people like that that you meet in life as you go along and, and you realize just because this guy is uh, the president of the United States, just because this guy is uh, the head of a, of a corporation doesn't mean necessarily that they're smarter than everybody else. You know, my, my father, when, when he was working in the defense industry, he got to meet a lot of high-ranking people. And he says, you know, it was the, the, the funny thing was, like, if you were at the Pentagon and you were a captain, do you know what you were doing? You were probably serving coffee. And so, I mean, and it, again, you know, there's an air, that area, of course, has got an incredibly high population of military people, and they move fast through the ranks. But they do that by kissing the right butts, you know, polishing the right hands, you know, whatever you want to say, greasing the right palms. It's a political game in there as much anything else. What, what do they call it? The Peter principle where they keep promoting you until you're incompetent? <laughs> yeah. You fail upwards, you say. Yep. Well, you, you know, you, you did this job so well, so we're going to give you the job above it. You did this job so well, we're going to give you the job above it. And now you suck at this job, so we're going to leave you at it. I'm still waiting to fail upwards. <laughs> <laughs> so now our odd job of this movie, our jaws of this movie is Necros or Necros, uh, who's the uh, Walkman wearing uh, speedo wearing <laughs> speedo wearing. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Killer. If you can pull it off. Yeah, it occurs to me that I'd probably become a cold blooded killer if I only had one song to listen to on my Walkman too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I find it an amusing reflection on the time, though, that he's using a Walkman to kill people. You know, just 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 because the era, you know, you can't do that with Bluetooth. This guy really got like around. Saying, it, it, when you try to do, when you try and kill people with your earbuds, it's really awkward. Yeah, oh, no, exactly. AirPods. You just you just shove them down their throat now, and they, they choke them. Done. Yeah, and but, what, what does he use now? Since he can't use milk bottles today, they they <laughs> did have they did have. What I thought was, you know, I like sometimes when they subvert expectations and when they had the butler come in and fight him and actually put up a really good fight against him before he finally went down. That subverted my expectations because you expected him to just take this guy out and, you know, one, two, three, no big deal. Uh, And I thought the fight scene was really well choreographed. And I thought it was, you know, it brought a level of realism to the movie that I think we didn't see in a lot of the other movies. So yeah, you I know did what? That's, like a, that. that's a really good that's a really good point, Paul. Uh, I'd like to uh, ask rather than assume on the milkman thing. In the UK, do they still have milkmen that deliver in glass bottles? Maybe in 1987 they did. I don't know. No, well, I know they did. I know they did then. <laughs> Somebody uh, call Andrew. Rosina, oh, Rosina, Rosina, right now. <laughs> if you're a dairy uh, farm, even even in this country, you can still get milk delivered. Because because Rosina Rosina was a, a British colonial. She grew up in Guyana. And she she buys milk in glass bottles because that's how she remembers it. We were getting glass bottles delivered in Brooklyn till the late seventies with the tinfoil tops. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I vaguely think... remember those, but uh yeah, that's that's a long time ago. Uh 
I think Necros is is primarily responsible for the strong diehard vibe I get from this movie because he was Tony. He was Carl's brother. He was the, he was first, the first terrorist one. that uh, that John, John McClane Kill. takes out in Die Hard. Very nice. Very nice. He's also he's also in the Mission Impossible um, series of movies. I mean, he's basically what what's her name's uh, cabbie or, or doorman for her wherever she goes. He opens the car doors for her. So he he would have been the guy in the chair with the uh, with it written on his shirt. Ho ho ho! Now I have a machine yes. gun. Yep, yes, that's the guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay, I didn't realize that that was the same person. Yep. Uh, I thought I thought he was appropriately threatening as the henchman. I think I would have liked to have seen him show just the slightest bit more personality, but it probably would have gone against. Uh, what they were doing because they were trying to almost present him, I think, as an automaton. You know, he's just out there doing the job. End of story. Uh, I liked the explosive milk bottles. I thought that was kind of a cool touch. Uh, so of of the people who were the villains of the piece, I thought he was the most effective. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He gives a horrible, like, blood-curdling scream when he plummets to his death, too. Which yes. Is, that's a brutal death, you know? Oh, yeah. so I, I liked that. It's it's truly horrifying. I, yeah. Well, just the the whole build-up to it. I mean, they're going at it for, like, two minutes on that cargo net. And I don't know if you ever had to climb a cargo net in, like, gym class or anything. Sucks. All yes. right? Cargo yes. nets suck. You don't want to. Climb it's hard it. when it's standing still, let alone yes. blowing around in the in the wake of a <laughs> of an aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I mean, everything about the way that, that shot and the stuntmen. I mean, the stuntmen look pretty good. Like they're filmed from far enough away where it's yeah, I totally buy that. That's Dalton and then and then the other guy. Um, but just the push in on his boot. It, we know what he has to do. And you see him do it, and it's the one cut, and then they cut to the cut to his face. Second cut, and then he's trying to beg off, like, "Don't do this to me." And then he's gone, and we all knew the line that was coming. Every one of us, even doesn't matter how old you were, you knew there was going to be some boot joke in there, and you knew. It, and, you, and I don't care. And I friggin' love it. Love it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna throw it out to the group and see. Who do you think I think was the most poorly cast person in this movie? Money Penny. No, I didn't think she was that bad. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Okay, Felix Leiter. Yes. Yeah. Felix, yeah. Felix yeah. Leiter, they took him off the set of Three's Company and put him into this movie. He was <laughs> terrible. And what do I say all the time? Yeah. You're not going to get a better Felix Leiter than Jack Lord. I totally yeah. agree. I totally agree with you. I don't I think know. Jeffrey Wright is. I Jeffrey mean, Wright is number favorite, two in my he's opinion. He's like one of my favorite actors. I I, I, I always liked it. In all seriousness, we're skipping ahead one movie. I always liked David Hedison. Yeah. I was going to say he's number three for me. It's it's Jack Lord, Jeffrey Wright, David Hedison, who was, you know, we had him in, in Live and Let Jeffrey Die. And Wright? We, Jeffrey Wright's in the, in the Daniel Craig movies. Okay. Yeah, he's I also like he's also the watcher. And if we're gonna go and if we're gonna go one yeah. more down the list, Bernie Casey. I like Bernie oh, yeah. Casey as well. He but uh, Dave and I had uh, we we almost stopped being friends when we reviewed that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was because because I I have a fondness for that movie. And Dave I wish I, I wish I wish I'd been around for that review, um, because strangely enough, I have some opinions. <laughs> Really? I wouldn't have thought so. Um, I could always revisit it. Oh, oh my God. John Terry was Hawk the Slayer. 
come on, you guys watched that movie, Hawk the Slayer? Uh, yes, I have seen it. Who I who was? John Terry was Hawk the Slayer. It was oh, a, a I, DVD movie. I feel so movie. much better now. I thought you said John Kerry. Well, you, you know, you know what? I, I didn't realize until I just looked at it now. He was, he was a uh, Christian Shepherd on Lost. Jack Shepherd's yeah, father. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's God, oh, that was driving me up the friggin' wall. But we're talking, you know, whatever it is, thirty years later, twenty-five years later, whatever it was. Uh, well, you know, he he, you guys... he he aged. He matured into a much more impressive actor than he was in this movie. Maybe one of you guys can solve a mystery for me. One of the characters I really, really like in this movie, and I and I feel bad every time he dies, is Saunders. I really like that character, and that actor seems so familiar to me. Does anybody else know anything else he's in? I tried looking him up. He doesn't even His... have a clickable link in Wikipedia, so... No, it's, it's funny, because I keep thinking, every time that I see that scene where... Bond says, Saunders, thanks. And Saunders just kind of gives that smile right before he walks to the door. Yeah. I go, I know this guy from somewhere. And I keep looking yep. at his like IMDB and like like you said, Wikipedia and everything. Cannot find it. But there is something else that he's done that just basically is not getting, you know, it's oh, not. Okay. He's the reverend in, in Death at a Funeral, the original version of Death at a Funeral. Oh, the, Brit the, Brit the, 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 the British the one, version. which that is so good. my pants laughing every time I watch Oh, my it. gosh, yes. Yeah, it is him. Totally. Yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he doesn't like, even have a picture. His name's Thomas Wheatley. Yeah. His, I mean, that's, yeah. Right, that's right. His profile is so low profile that he doesn't even have a picture in there. Yeah, yeah. Maybe the living doesn't want to act. His, his do, IMD really like... profile uh, gives Living Daylights as his most memorable role. Oh yeah. no, the Reverend is definitely up there. <laughs> but no, I, I really like his character because at first, you know, he's he's kind of grating and irritating, and you can tell Bond really has taken an instant dislike to him. But you know, just before he dies, it seems like they're they actually have like a budding. At least a budding respect for each other. I don't yeah, know I think that's friendship. Well, he's a, he's a section chief. I mean, he's supposed to be the top dog there, and Bond just comes in and overrides him from the beginning. Right. So there's that tension from there, and you know, then of course he's going by on um, Bond's reputation. Oh, he's a ladies' man. He's always about the ladies and keeps jumping Bond. But as he you know figures out, you know, Bond really knows what he's doing. Oh, I'll, say, great. I'll say this as an actor in, in IMDb, he's got 56 credits. Um. Some of which are with the oh, Royal Shakespeare Company there. for, oh, for TV, so it would suggest that he's a stage actor. Okay, I'll have to look him up there. I, I hardly ever go to IMDb, so I'll have to look him up there. That was my mistake, because, yeah, there's nothing. He doesn't even have a clickable link in Wikipedia to look him up. So, But, yeah, so I the, know I've seen him in something else. That's one so of the, funny. I, I, always know that, I always know that, too, and now Death at a Funeral, man. That's, that's, it, once you know it, it's inescapable. <laughs> He was also so, on the singing detective. Oof. <laughs> the one other, the one other uh, role in the movie that I just feel obligated to mention, just because I, I love Desmond Llewellyn. I always love him. Every movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and you know what? As as cringeworthy as the line was, I laugh when he talks about the ghetto blaster. <laughs> I, I, I still think it's funny, that's even though it's, it that's, shouldn't that's be, a but holdover it is. From the Roger Moore movies, man. You yeah. missed a character, Paul, though. There's one character you didn't talk about at all. Who's that? The Aston Martin. The car. Yes. The car. Because it, it, this is, in all the Bond movies, this is probably my favorite Bond car, simply because... It is mine. As, yeah. as an Aston Martin, it is gorgeous, but it's also a car that any one of us could drive down the street 
You know, it it it, it doesn't just seem so. It's know, not. Like, it's it's not. It's not an in. It's not vintage. It's a, it, it's of the moment. Yeah. Um. It is. Uh, at the early age of aerodynamic design, where now all of our cars look the same. Um. Uh. So it it would it stood out, but it was not alien. Right. No, and it's like, it was like the it, it looked, was like it the, looked the like Batmobile. it would handle it looked like it would handle great. Yeah. See, when, uh, I, when I first saw this movie and, and first really kind of fell in love with the movie, I was still living in upstate New York. So, you know, the idea of a car that has outriggers and, you know, spikes for tires was <laughs> yeah. like, yes, I need this car. But then <laughs> even to this day, especially now, you know, living in Florida and having to deal with Orlando traffic every day. Every time I find myself stuck in a traffic jam, I really want this car for the missiles that missiles. it wants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. See, that's, that's where I want the Christian Bale Batmobile, just so I could drive over all the cars. <laughs> you know, what's, what's, what, what's fun about this, we were talking about this the other day, and I, I, I came up with the admission that as much as I've always wanted missiles in my car, uh, I now would go for the satisfaction of a chain gun. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, one of the things I, I, that just you know strikes me in this movie, as it do, also does in Rambo Three, is the oh. late 1980s thought that oh the Afghani's are our friends because they're against <laughs> Russia. The, the Mujahideen. The Mujahideen. Uh, yeah. One of one of the Whoops. one of the really interesting things, and this gets this gets back to what I was saying earlier. I I really, honest to goodness, was like really close to doing a Sovietology major. Uh, so I, I'm I'm a junkie for this kind of stuff, and our our success and in, it, at the time it absolutely was our success in in arming the Mujahideen against the Soviets. They were doing raids a hundred miles into the Soviet Union, but in true fashion, the CIA can't ever imagine how this would go back against us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they when they got to use our own weapons against us, so, yeah. I don't know how that happened. Yeah, watch and it's Charlie not a, it's not a recurring war. theme either, right? <laughs> yeah, watch, yeah. watch Charlie Wilson's War if you want to know more about that. I don't know if I want to know more about that, quite frankly. It's it's gonna, it's it's I'm bothersome. Watch Rambo three, and I'm going to leave it at that. Okay. And they don't <laughs> don't they actually have something on on Rambo three where they say you know they dedicate it to the brave to the warriors? Brave freedom. Yep, they sure do. And yeah, I can okay. watch it at the on the comfort of my chair, and at the end of it, I'm going to go. <laughs> and then I'm going to put on the next Rambo movie. Now, so, you also uh, forgot Art Malik, who was uh, the, what? Shaw. Karim Shaw, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, of course, he's the bad guy in True Lies just a couple years later. Is that him? Yeah. Jeez. Oh, wow. Those are two very different performances. Yeah, I mean, he's a very wow. good actor. I mean, the thing is, is that if you go back into the 70s and 80s, you'll see a lot of British like customer service videos, like John Cleese does those, uh, who sold you this then and such. And Art Malik is a part of all that too. So you can find him in lots of different places. Wow. Huh? So the movie okay. is, okay. this, this has, has, okay. The most tangential bond reference because Cleese was in a bond movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I was sitting in the, in the, in, in New York city. I pre COVID, uh, every Saturday, one of my creative partners and I would have uh, breakfast at the same restaurant in Chelsea Square. And 
Kaliska is walking by with a very small entourage. And I, to this day, and it's been three years, I don't think I'm over the fact that he wasn't doing a silly walk. <laughs> I was going to ask, was he doing a silly walk? I, was, I, I, I found that so disappointing. Never meet your heroes. Just like, just like, just like, just like when I was ten and had my first bagel and it wasn't a donut. These are things that just haunt me. Cool, but both those, both of those foods with holes in them are, are good in their own ways. I don't know how almost. I almost don't know how to follow that up. We should almost end the episode. Ah, well, we'll, we'll go on a little bit longer. Uh, this so the movie's directed by John Glenn, who has the distinction, I believe, of directing more James Bond movies than anyone else. Directed for your eyes only, Octopussy, of You to a Kill, Living Daylights, and License to Kill. Uh, was also a second unit director on uh, On a Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker, as well as Superman the Movie. Uh, so he's... he's he, I mean, he's not. Did, he yes. did, he, yes. did, he, did he have something to do with uh, Zorro, too? Uh, no, that was um, Martin Campbell. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Okay. So right. I, I'd say Glenn, Glenn, if you look at the track record there, um, he may be one of those directors that's as good as the material he's given. Well, he I think that's exactly editor. the case. He was editor for a lot of movies, including on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Right, and The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, yeah. And being, but, be, listen, being a second unit director is 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 no easy job, and being an editor of putting together one of these epics, something. Can you imagine? In in the era of practical effects and very little digital, well, no digital, um, putting together Spy Who Loved Me, that's oh, yes. that's that's pretty freaking impressive. But if you then turn around and say the same guy, the same guy that did this directed Moonraker, hmm. what? Hey, it's some, well, you know, no, he he uh, no, he was the second unit director on Moonraker. Oh, his okay. first yeah. his hey, first direction was for your, for your eyes only. Okay. Hey, the same me, guy that directed The Empire Strikes Back directed RoboCop 2, so you know. Yeah. Now he also <laughs> directed... we can talk RoboCop 2 some other time, but I I, I think that's all right. I think, I think listen, it's, it's I think you can make an argument much. that that he's a he's a pendulum guy, and the only reason to be a pendulum guy is if you're just you're taking the material you were given. He must have liked Mariam Diabo because he took her with him to Space Precinct. When he was directing, he directed eight episodes of that, and she was on that show, which it wasn't a good show. <laughs> I think I think you know Jeff hit it on the head with with Glenn. I think he does what the, he does what the material he's given kind of says to do. Uh, I think he puts together a movie, and I think it's a little underrated in 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 this era because. Uh, you know, we've gotten to a point or we were getting to a point at this point where they were doing a lot of quick cuts on movies. Oh. Not they were, they were doing away with establishing shots. They got into the shaky cam. He never seems to have fallen into that. Those tropes. Yeah. And I think I think those are mostly bad tropes un unless they're used incredibly sparingly. Uh, so I think he does probably, you know, if you want to put it. On the negative side, you could say it's a workmanlike job, but if you want to put it on the positive side, he he puts together a movie that's easy to follow, that that tells yes. a linear story, uh, and and I think the shots are really nicely laid out together. So I'm really content with the job he did on this movie, and 
even what he did on the other movies of his that I've seen. Now, I've never seen Aces, Iron Eagle 3. I've never <laughs> seen Christopher Columbus, The Discovery with Gerard Depardieu. Uh, so I, I don't know how he did on those movies. But on the James Bond movies that he directed, I don't think I put any blame for what ne- what negatives you can give them on his direction. If anything, I'm putting it on the script or the budget. And the producers. Or, or the, on, the only one that I, I maybe can, can put a little bit on him, and when we talked about A View to a Kill, we talked about how how easy it is to tell when it's a stuntman and not Roger Moore, and maybe the director could have done a little something to hide that better. <laughs> yeah, that that is on the that is on the director and director of photography, absolutely 100%. You're absolutely but other, right. than, other than that, I really right, have no but issue but with But you're right, and, that, and View to a Kill, that's a pretty big thing. I... I can't disagree with that. I mean, you know, at, at one point, at one point in View to a Kill, one of the stuntmen has like, you know, like an arm three times the, long, the length of Roger Moore's arm. And <laughs> I do remember bringing that. Was up. he a very long arm? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. <laughs> I know the audience. <laughs> so now, anybody who's listened to me on the show when Scott is on knows that Scott is my score guy. I, I <laughs> lean on him heavily to, to tell me about scores because when I watch movies. I let the score take me wherever it's going to take me, but I don't really necessarily think about where it's taking me. I just let it do its job. Uh, When I look at movies, I think if the score really stands out to me, it's probably not doing its job as well as it should, with a few exceptions. But even in those exceptions, a lot of the uh, John Williams scores that we could talk about that are so, so memorable, they're memorable to me after the fact. After the movie was done and I and I hear it and it brings back the memories of the movie, that's great. But I never I didn't sit there during Raiders of the Lost Ark and say, oh, listen to that John Williams score. I just let the score take me through the movie and it did a beautiful job. Same thing with Superman, the movie, the same thing with Star Wars. Uh, so when when a, to me, when a score stands out to you while you're watching the movie, it's not doing its job. Uh, that said, what did you think of this one, Scott? I like this one a lot, and uh, that's high praise coming from me because I'm very hot and cold on Barry on uh, John Barry. Um, I, I know that's kind of a, a sacrilegious thought to some because he's held an incredibly high regard in the film score community, and frankly, I've never quite understood why um, his stuff, all of his stuff, sounds very much alike. Sometimes to the to the untrained ear, you know, you could easily mistake one of his scores for for another. And so, you know, for his for for one of his scores to really stand out is like, okay, this is a really good John Barry score. Then it that has to kind of be a, extra exceptional, if you know what I mean. And this one really does. I mean, this was his last turn, um, you know, d- scoring a Bond movie, and he went out big because I think this is one of his very best. It's a really, really good score. And I'm from the John Williams school of scoring where I like where there are discernible themes for characters or for settings or for situations where it's not just background music, where where the, the score is part of the storytelling. And that's not John Barry's strong suit yet he does it with this movie. There are very strong discernible themes. You've obviously got the James Bond theme, but there's a couple of Bond themes going here. Um, then you have kind of the villain theme with the, uh, 
where has everybody gone that keeps getting reworked in different yes. ways and it's it's all through the picture you've got um if there was a man which is the the love theme of the movie yeah and that's reworked a couple of different ways the soviets have their own like mini motif theme through the movie and and there's a couple of different ones so i really like that he was doing that with this because again he doesn't typically do that if you listen to like the black hole for example i love that score but it really is just da 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 over and over and over and over for two hours you know and so you know this one he was kind of breaking his own mold and and i like that although it's funny to me um not long ago i i walked into a place that has background music playing and as part of their background music loop, uh, they use, um, I think the track is called Ride to Fort Hayes from um, Dances with Wolves, which is another film scored by Barry a few years after this. And I've heard that soundtrack a million times, but it was hearing it kind of like just out somewhere that it kind of took me a second to recognize what the piece was. And at first I thought it was... Uh, if there was a man from this, the love theme from this movie. And I, I suddenly realized, holy shit, that there's like major motifs in dances with wolves that are just, if there was a man slowed down, that's all. It's the same thing. It's just, he totally reused the same thing. He just slowed it down. So, so yeah, he, he does kind of reuse his own stuff and, and have kind of a, a uniform sound through all of his projects, but it works in this one. I, I really do dig this score. I was listening to it uh, on my drive uh, to and from work today just to kind of refamiliarize myself. And it's, it's a damn good score, especially if you get the uh, – a few years ago, I, I forget which company it was, but one of the film score companies put out an expanded two-disc set because the original release is is not very good it just wasn't very comprehensive but the two disc set is pretty much every musical beat in the movie in chronological order and I like it when they do that too and it plays really well as a standalone album so yeah this this is a really good score cool Anybody else have any thoughts on that before we I, move on? I'll just say that as far as the score goes I've got bits and pieces still playing in my head I watched the movie a week ago getting ready for this. And like every day I would sit there and notice, yeah, I got that bit playing in my head. So it, <laughs> it, it's, as Scott says, it's, it's got memorable pieces to it. And they're not necessarily always the, the bond themes that you hear. Right. I, yeah. I, I, it's, it's funny. I'll agree with Scott's observation about this movie being a, a, a great one uh, for Barry, though. I've got to say, whether you're talking about the deep, or Hammett, or I'd, I'd say Dances with Wolves, uh, or Body Heat. I don't think I don't find his work to be that similar uh, uh, in in each of these in each of these instances. Um, that said, I do think this one is a this one's a pinnacle, and I I like I said early on, I just love uh, uh, Where Is Everybody Gone. I, I just it just the the baseline's so rocking and it's got all the right bond elements and yet it's it's rock and roll too so it, it's pretty outstanding. I mean it's not the it's not on Her Majesty's Secret Service which is my no. favorite Barry piece, but he uh, did Howard the Duck. He did Howard the Duck. <laughs> he did yeah. Howard the Duck. 
That's too bad. And yeah. strangely, strangely gotcha. enough, I had like almost every iteration of the soundtrack, the 12 inch. I had everything from that movie. <laughs> I can't explain that. So now before we get to the to the big question that we always wrap up with, does anybody have anything else to add about the movie that we kind of skipped over? Well, I, I just wanted to touch back on the car real quick, just to let Dave know that I, I'm not completely blind to the, to some of the movie's faults, because when he lasers the chassis of the <laughs> cop car and then the car the car just totally slides off, that that's physically impossible for one, but it's it's pretty ridiculous and over the top. Well, and I do so, that. so I'm not blind to all of. <laughs> And for uh, uh, typecasting 101, Julie T. Wallace as the obligatory Russian woman. Uh, you might know her from uh, Fifth Element as yes. uh, as a soldier ah. woman that was supposed to go with Corbin right. Dallas to yeah to Plots in Paradise. I'm not gonna lie, I wanted to get in her in her boiler suit at the beginning there. <laughs> I, I'd scale that mountain. I'm not gonna lie. All right, we're gonna leave that one right there. And I guess we'll we'll go around the clock like we did uh, in the start and uh, get everybody's take on where it falls on the Jaws scale. Brian, you start us off. I'm going to say, it's for me, it's a low Jaws 2. Uh, it's something that if it comes on, I'm going to watch it. Uh, I don't think it's one of the better Bonds, but it's something that I enjoy watching all the time. And as far as, uh, I mean, it's, to me, my favorite Bond movie is For Your Eyes Only. Uh, even with the new Daniel Craig stuff, that's still my favorite Bond movie of all time, uh, simply because it's got the best chases. And this one, while it had a lot of cool things going on in it, it didn't have so many chase scenes that uh, you know had really good conclusions, like you know again like For Your Eyes Only. But still, with all that, I love Timothy Dalton's Bond. Um, Marm Diabo is a great Bond woman. The the villain. But still, it's it's a Jaws 2 to me because, to me, it's one of those movies I could watch any time. Well, fair enough. Chris? It's a high Jaws 2 for me. This is this is easily in my, my upper echelon of, of, of Bond movies. Um, and again, I, I, you know, everybody else has, has said all the, all the good stuff about this. Yeah, the villains, not the best. Um, it's not really why I'm here. Um, I, I, lo- I love this take on, on the closer to the book bond and uh i just i have a blast every time i watch this i could watch that opening pre the pre-titles i i don't know how many times i've just put on the dvd and just watched and that's that's something i wanted to mention earlier and i'm sorry about that the two actors that were the uh 002 and 00 was it five four uh one of them was basically supposed to be a a roger moore lookalike and the other one was supposed to be a connery lookalike yeah Hmm. So, yeah, rewatch that. You'll 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 good, see it. Good, and good, and good, if you good, ever want to see a better version of the SAS represent represented anywhere on screen, watch the final option. Because they oh, were brother, a amen. Yeah, because they they were not really uh, uh, represented well in this movie. Well, this is a Bond movie. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah, high draws too. Did great yeah. music, really good action, weak villains, but. Yeah, anytime this one comes on, this one, this is one of like the five or six that if I'm bored and there's nothing going on, I'm throwing this one on. I'm probably watching Honor Majesty's Secret Service like right before it. So, high draws too. Right, to you, Scott. 
uh, highest possible Jaws 2 on this one. I, I I freaking love this movie. And yeah, anytime it's on, I'll, I'll end up watching it start to finish. Um, I, I just, I, I can't quite put it, you know, as a Jaws, because I, I think, you know, based on the criteria and everything, you know, I, I reserve those for like, you know, true cinematic masterpiece. This one's showing its age. And, and I would be very curious to show this to a young person, you know, like w- watch this with like with one of my 20 year old kids or something and see what they would think of it. I, I tend to think a younger audience might be a little bored with it or whatever. So, you know, there's all that to take into consideration. But for me, I, I, I think it's really great. And, uh, and I love this. And it's, it's my personal favorite of all of them. So, yeah. Hi, Jaws 2. Okay, Jeff. The lowest possible Jaws. Uh, I, 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 I really like Dalton as Bond in this movie. I will reserve comments on the next one for the next one. Um, I I think that what they tried to do, in some cases wholeheartedly, in some cases half-heartedly, they largely succeeded. And it was enough of a good departure from the last Moore movie that it put the thoughts of that bond out of my head. So it was very effective with that. Um, You know, the music was of the time, but it's still catchy. And there's other elements that are of the time. And I I, I think it's all good to, you know, I I have a 14 year old nephew. I'd like to get his thoughts on this uh, to see where, where he comes in. Cause he likes bond. Um, but that's yeah, that's that's about it. I I I can't go Jaws two because I think Jaws fall off precipitously after the first one. No, as I've told you in the past, <laughs> my my rankings for the sake of this show do not equal the actual reviews of the Jaws. Oh, movies. I I know, I absolutely, I absolutely. <laughs> uh, but I would I would pick this as like probably probably in my in my top five, certainly top six. And just for anybody listening so that they understand, the Jaws scale is one thing. The Jaws movies, Jaws 2, I ranked as a Jaws 3. Jaws, <laughs> right. Jaws 3 ranks as Jaws 4. <laughs> so, you know, they, they don't necessarily I, correlate. No, you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely correct. I just think, I, I really think this is a good one, um, flaws included. Okay. Dave? The only thing I really didn't lo- like about this movie are the bad guys. Dalton, I really like, and I would have liked to see him in a slightly better Bond movie. I like the Bond girl. I like the new Money Penny. The car was great. The Cold War. I ranked it a very low Jaws 2. Okay. Well, the description you just gave, Dave, I agree with pretty much what you say. I rank it as kind of a middle-of-the-pack Jaws 2. Uh, I think it's an enjoyable movie. I really do like Dalton's portrayal as Bond. I wish he had been given more opportunities to be Bond. And I think, as I said, I think it's directed in a in a pretty, pretty decent way. I think, you know, I'm, I'm going to defer to Scott on the score and say it's, you know, it's got really high-quality scoring. 
Uh, I think Marianne Dabo was really solid in the role. My biggest problem is the villains in the movie. I think that they are underwritten. I think that they should have been given a little bit more depth, given a little bit more to make you feel that they truly were a threat for Bond to overcome. Uh, I, I don't think that was the goal of the writers, and I think it should have been a little bit more. So, you know, it's what keeps it from being, you know, that that top, top movie that it could have been. Uh, but, you know, it's a solid Jaws 2. If I'm watching, I'm putting it on. Uh, I don't know that the, you know, Scott's 20-year-old, 20-ish kids or, or Jeff's 14-year-old nephew are going to be as enthralled by it as we are. Uh, I do think it might be a little slow moving for them. And I think that the action sequences could have been ramped up just a little bit more, uh, but not at the expense of the characterization. I think they needed to really, you know, they needed to doctor the script a little bit to, to get it to rank higher than than they did. But overall, it's still an enjoyable movie as far as I'm concerned. So it's a solid middle of the road Jaws too. Uh, so that's it for The Living Daylights. I want to thank everybody for coming on. I'm, I'm not going to let everybody pimp their stuff only because we don't want to add another half an hour to the show with so many <laughs> guests on here. But uh, thank you to everybody who came on. And the next time out for James Bond, we'll be doing the uh, swan song for Timothy Dalton. <laughs> we hardly knew ye. Uh, we'll be doing License to Kill next time. And, uh, you know, I don't know what we're doing next week, but thank you, everybody, for listening. And, uh, you know, come on back. We'll review something for you. Sorry, Mr. Bond. You'll have to leave the metal. Thank you, sir. Good morning, sir. Good morning. May I help you? No, thanks. I'll manage. They're expecting you in the drawing room. Thank you. Come. James. James, I will never forget what you did for me. Thank you so What's this? What's <gasps> From Harrods, a godsend. The food here is horrible. The foie gras is excellent. Da, da, da. As Russians say, hearts and stomachs good comrades make. <laughs> What's this? Caviar? Well, that's peasant food for us. But with champagne, it's okay. Bollinger R.D., the best. Mm. Uh, the brand on the list was questionable, sir, so I took the liberty of choosing something else. Superb, Mr. Bond, superb. May I suggest we resume the debriefing? Absolutely, go ahead. I'm all yours. <laughs> Where's the usual milkman? What's he say? Where's the usual man? <laughs> Flo. Hey, mate, watch it. Kitchen entrance, round the back. General Leonid Pushkin is why I defect. Watch your... your KGB superior. Yes, Gogol's replacement, when he went over to their foreign service. Once we were like brothers. But now he's a different man. Power has gone to his head. He's sick like Stalin. He hates our new policy of detente. I have here secret directive from Pushkin, Smirchpionam. Death to spies, Minister. Da. For an assassination program with list of targets, British and American agents. 
When this starts, you will retaliate. Murder will follow murder. Soviet and Western intelligence could destroy each other. God forbid this might lead to nuclear war. Unless Pushkin can be, how do you say, put away.